Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. Joining me today are two former Acquisition Talk guests who need little introductions, Steve Blank of Stanford and Pete Newell of BMNT. Steve, Pete, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Thanks Thanks for having us. So it's been five years since you guys have launched the Hacking for Defense course at Stanford. And so today we want to dive into some of that history, what you guys have been seeing and going forward as well. So can you talk a little bit about the origin story there and your own personal reasons for uh, starting this class? Pete, let's start with you. So uh, I guess, in fact, I will tell you, this is the pilot or the event that we were holding that led to this is where Steve and I met. BMT in its early days was asked by a, a government client to demonstrate a means by which people on the Pentagon could have an honest conversation about something meaningful to the Pentagon with folks in Silicon Valley. And, and this was in the middle of the, the NSA leaks and a bunch of other reasons. But if you listen to people in the Pentagon, they thought that, they, quite frankly, Silicon Valley was anti-defense. And if you understand the history of Silicon Valley and you've ever set foot on Stanford other places, realize that's not true. But, but because the business model in Silicon Valley is so different from the governments, they just don't see eye to eye. We used the idea of taking government problems that were in difficult to decipher government language and translate that into something that sounded like English to everybody else, and then use that to recruit people in the Valley to further translate the problem into something that was exciting to the Valley, which meant that it was really a dual-use problem. By solving something in the military, it actually, there was a twin to the problem out in the commercial space. We recruited a bunch of Stanford students during spring break to do it. And in fact, it was a student that was taking Steve's Lean Launchpad class who went to Steve and, and we had recruited him and, and Steve, he told Steve that he and Pete needed to sit down and have coffee. So in, in the middle of running this exercise, Steve Blank showed up in BMT's office and what started as a, a 20 minute um, get to know each other coffee went, I don't know, Steve, three hours. In the midst of this, Steve started sketching out uh, lean methodology in a big dry erase wall and I started sketching out uh, problem curation and the process by which I built things for the rapid equipping force in Afghanistan. And, and what we realized at the end was the hieroglyphics that we drew were almost identical. We used completely different language to talk about it though. To Steve's credit, you know, he walked out the door that day and said, You're gonna, we're gonna take everything I've done for Lean and all the IP and we're gonna use this stuff to help the defense actually make progress. Now. The exercise we were doing went really well. The exit for this was the, the teams of students had to pitch their restated dual-use problem to you know, one of the heads of the venture capital firms on um, Sand Hill. The guy girl snatched it out of the hand and said, let me email this to my portfolio companies. You got an A. And everybody got A's. It did really great feedback. We were out briefing Bill Perry at the end of that, former Secretary Perry and, and some other luminaries of the government client. And... We had to acknowledge that 
although it went really well, we had misappropriated Stanford students during spring break to run this exercise and do this thing. And quite frankly, that's not scalable because during the school year, they've got all these classes and there's just too much stuff gets in the way. And, and we were ready to say, great idea, not scalable. When one of the students who had never touched the military or done anything else got in the back room and said, wait, had this been a class at Stanford, I would have taken it. And the rest of the story starts with Steve Blank saying, great, we're going to teach you class at Stanford. So Steve, did you want to jump in there? How about your own personal views and reasons for, for starting this? The version of my story was simply, as Pete said, I had this student who said, you got to meet this ex-army colonel, blah, 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 is all I remember. And then I remember going over there. And the thing that stuck in my mind was uh, Pete describing his methodology for, for deploying things rapidly to the battlefield. Um, Pete always describes, I, I'll say, is Pete describes sushi as cold dead fish wrapped in seaweed and <laughs> underplays uh, what he delivered. But he still probably holds the record in both commercial and government world for deploying more things to the battlefield than anybody else, period, over 300 things. And when I heard him describe his methodology for what the rapid equipping force did in Iraq and Afghanistan, I realized Pete had built the lean methodology from first principles, ab initio, but he had an interesting front end to it, which I didn't appreciate, which was spending time truly trying to understand the front end of, is this really a problem? And is this an important enough problem to spend money, time, and, and effort on? And the combination of the two actually helped me further refine this lean process. And, and we'll get to the how did Hacking for Defense come out of that conversation, but Pete was right. What we both thought was a 10-minute meet and greet. So it literally turned into hours of whiteboard discussion. On, on these methodologies that literally had been derived from completely different points, but ended up uh, looking the same. Just for some background, uh, I co-created something called the Lean Startup Methodology with Eric Reese and Alexander Osterwalder. We won't go into that here. But the interesting part is I taught a class based on it, which was the first time that instead of how to write a business plan, it was actually how to actually build you know, new ventures from first principles using Lean. And that class at Stanford got adopted by the National Science Foundation. It's now called i to get a SIBR grant from the NSF or parts of the NIH. You have to take this class, which is now taught in 100 universities across the U.S. and now around the world. So that was the going into st table stakes of walking into Pete's office. And we started talking about the need for the DOD to have some way to teach what Pete had learned at REF and what I had been seeing in training the country's top scientists and engineers, and obviously students and all these research universities. And it dawned on me that we could use this entire Lean Launchpad slash i class, which was already successful. But this time, instead of having people come in with their own ideas or own technology, let's go out to the DOD and IC and get their problems and see if we could get students and research universities to work on that. And so a couple of things were in my head on that day is, there was Pete and I and one of Pete's co-founders named Joe Felter, and, and we started thinking about, could we make this a national program at the same size and scale of i -Corps? So big idea was, one is, how could we serve the country? Two is how we could use the existing framework. And three is, could we build something that was bigger than just one class? And now, five years later, I think we're pretty proud that this is part of the NDAA run by DIU and in 50 universities being taught all over the place and with an amazing output. And that's at least my memory of the background. The rest was just a bunch of hard work and going out to sponsors and great lots of stories of how we got the first sponsors when no one wanted to do this, et cetera. 
But my personal motivation for this, I just served a short period of time on Pete and Joe Felter, who gave decades to the country. But I had a long belief in service, not just paying taxes or voting, but actual service that at some point in your life, you need to serve others, whether it's God, country, community, or family. I did uh, four years in the military in Vietnam, and I did uh, six and a half years as a public official in California, and now as a couple decades as an educator. But it was pretty clear to me, looking back, that our country was a lot more cohesive when all of us had to work together and share the space together and work on things that made the country safer and secure. And, and this, to me, was going to be another small but, but important contribution to getting students who would never consider any form of national service into the game. And if we could do it at scale, then we would get people who would never have worked with branches of the DOD or the intelligence community uh, to show up. And the result, uh, by the way, has been pretty unexpected. The attach rate at Stanford is, and I think at other universities, is close to 40%. Pretty amazing where their career paths include work for Facebook or Google or whatever the hottest startup is. But instead, some of them are, a good number of them are choosing service. So that's, that's a long answer to a short question, but that's my story and I'm sticking to it. I go back and give you the why of, I give you the what. So I guess my motivation, and I, here's what I tell you, for a long career in the military, my time on the rapid equipment force was the first time that somebody just completely took the, the doors off the barn and said, go do as much as you can, as fast as you can with no limits. And it's not that I didn't have limits. I, I had to work hard to get where it was. But I became addicted to finding problems and solving them. And the reason I retired from the military is because they told me they weren't going to let me do it anymore. They literally said, we think you're going to be a general someday, so you got to move to the next assignment. And I said, no. I decided to retire and essentially build an organization that would do this so I could continue feeding my addiction. And now it's just grown and gone. But I, I, I think I'm a little bit like Steve, is that I truly... I'm addicted to solving our country's problems and then building a wave of people that will do that. The nature of the relationship between Steve and I some days is I have great ideas and, and Steve will look at me and say, that's fine. But if you wanted to have a big idea, here's what it would look like. Yeah, and it just feeds off itself. I'm glad to hear where you guys are taking it in terms of feeding that next generation and your own itch. You know, it what you're talking about there, Pete, I was just bemoaning yesterday, like the long tenures that we used to see in defense acquisition fields like the the red Rayborns of the ballistic missile system, the Hyman Rickovers, the Bernard Shrievers. And it seems like a lot of those incentives aren't there today. But in my view of the history, it's not just the tenure problem. These matters of public procurement of how weapon systems are developed and the policy around that, they used to have this big place in universities and top journals in the 50s and 60s. And I repeatedly saw that. But then it seemed to me like since the 70s, there seemed to be this kind of like academic exodus from the field. And that kind of had some of these knock-on effects of students not being exposed and that lack of exposure might have them not be willing to do business with the government or be in the government as much. Did you guys have anything to just uh, comment on that point of view? I would double down on it. Yeah. And I would lay out a conversation we had with the commandant of the Eisenhower School several years ago is because there were officers at the Eisenhower School who really wanted to launch a hacking for defense class NDU. And, and they still, they're really supportive of the concept and the, the people get involved. But the idea of, of teaching lean methodology as a part of an innovation doctrine inside a professional military education program is still not 
become baked into the professional civil and military education system. The challenge, though, is you said, I remember the, the 70s, my, my dad was an instructor at the Commanding General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth for the Army. And that was a primo assignment. That's where everybody tried to get. But today, you know, a lot of the folks, instructors of schools, they're, they're contractors. So this consolidation of military education into what I hate to call them as echo chambers of excellence wrapped around just operational or military strategy is further separated folks in the military from the rest of the population. So there's less and less academic cross-fertilization between them. That's very different than what, for instance, in the UK. The, it's interesting that Hacking for Ministry of Defense program in the UK is sponsored by the people in the Ministry of Defense. Taught at King's College London is a part of a master's degree program in defense innovation and entrepreneurship. The capstone course is hacking for the Ministry of Defense, but it's taught where civilian and military officers at fairly senior levels are actually able to get in a room and mix it up together. And I, to me, that's the right ideal. Steve? Yeah, I, I think if your question is what happened, it's probably worth a couple minutes talking a bit about history. In World War II was the first time that the federal government ever gave money to research universities or any universities, period. That's a big idea. We take for granted for the last 75 years that universities get funded from NSF or NIH or DOD for both applied and basic research, et cetera. That was just a, a, a sea change that happened when one guy who was the president of the Carnegie Institute and named Vannevar Bush went to Roosevelt and said, look, the, the services know how to make you know guns and ships and tanks, but World War II will be a, a technology war. And the Army and Navy are just not equipped to do that. And of course, the Army and Navy said, of course we are. We need to own that we have great weapons labs. Look at our guns. In any case, Roosevelt kind of split the baby in half and said, advanced technology will be made by civilians. And the weapons lab and the weapons foundries will make B-24s and 29s and tanks and Shermans and whatever else. And we set up something called the OSR&D, which was basically... 19 divisions of advanced research for, for everything from radar to electronic warfare to there was a physics group that uh, kind of had the result over Hiroshima and Nagasaki that actually spun out because it was too big to even be inside of OSR&D called the Manhattan Project. But post-World War II, universities and the country decided it was still a pretty good idea for the federal government to fund research at both basic and applied in, in universities. And, and that continued from 1945 to about 1950 on a fairly low level until the Korean War broke out. And then all of a sudden the DOD got into the action and basically doubled down on funding back to universities. And basically every research university in the United States from about 1950 to circa 1968 had a military weapons lab inside their engineering department or their math department or something else that was working on not running factories, but doing basic and maybe prototypes for applied research of whether it was cryptography or radar or electronic warfare or, or, or something else, whether it was Stanford or MIT or University of Michigan or whatever, every university in the United States was engaged technically in the Cold War. And then the Vietnam War happened, where up till then, helping your country defeat the Soviet Union was a patriotic endeavor for both faculty and students People don't remember how vociferous the country and the opposition was to that war. 
because, by the way, there was skin in the game for all citizens, and there was a draft. And it became a pretty unpopular war, so unpopular that there were riots on campus to force military activities off the campus. And for example, at my school at Stanford, basically in 1968 or nine, they threw all classified work off of campus, banned ROTC, which is, we still see some residue with that, and basically demonized military research on campuses. And it wasn't just Stanford or MIT or Harvard, it happened all across the United States. And so for the next 30 some odd years, there was this big disconnect between federal research, FFRDCs and, and university research, which used to power the advanced research, moved off campus and basically drove innovation clusters like Silicon Valley and, and things around Boston for commercial activities. And this is a long soliloquy to say, when 9-11 happened, some universities and, and some got back in the game, but then when the Snowden revelations came out and the DOD decided to put their head in the ground and pretend it didn't happen, or even got smart or would have got smart and said, what if we could do that? Wouldn't you like to work for those people? Instead, pretended it never happened and let other people manage the agenda. So the long answer is there's a long history of university collaboration with the Department of Defense we kind of lost that thread. And to be honest, the DOD couldn't have done worse if they had tried to reestablish that trust and relationships over the last uh, 50 years or so. And actually, I remember when we started hacking for defense, we were a little leery about whether this would be accepted on the campus, you know, both ours and others. And as Pete said, we've been pleasantly surprised to find out that my instinct and Pete's instinct was right. The noisy folks and the, the folks actually that people spend their lives defending their, their right to have a different opinion stood up and, and objected, but most of the rest of the students and faculty think it's a great idea that uh, we should do service in, in, to support our country. So that's a long soliloquy to a very simple question, but, but understanding some of this history gives some context that this is not a, a program or project as a point in time. This is a continuum of what's occurred in universities and its relationship to the DOD and IC for the last 75 years. Can you talk a little bit about how the Hacking for Defense program seems to actually now where you brought up the Vietnam War and then we had 9-11 and the Snowden. Now we're entering this new era of great power competition. And that's going to probably be one of the defining things of this next generation. And there's probably going to be a lot of interest. So do you see like this Hacking for Defense program great power competition, renewed interest in, in public service, and these kind of systemic problems facing the nation, especially with the pandemic that just came. What's your views there on, on how the Hacking for Defense aligns with those national initiatives and getting the workforce really up to snuff? I'll give the shorter answers. When I started Hacking for Defense with Pete, I also started Hacking for Diplomacy with Professor Jeremy Weinstein at Stanford. And, and we were thinking that in the Clinton administration, that would scale with the State Department, because that's who started it. And of course, when we had a different outcome, there, there was no State Department, or at least no one there who was interested in scaling that program. But in the meantime, other versions of Hacking for X, which I'll let Pete talk about, whether it was diplomacy, which is still occurring in some places, or energy, or the environment, or for oceans, have all kind of sprung up using the exact same framework of using this lean I-Core frame and going out to sponsors to work on national or international. And Pete, you want to expand on that a bit? 
Yeah, I was going to say the you know Eric, if you go to the the basic premise of of what the H for X, the hacking for anything platform, whether it's defense, homeland security, diplomacy, energy, oceans, sustainability, or national health system. I think I just rattle off all of them that are running right now. It promises the opportunity to actually learn about the problems of, of their generation. It's not about case study. They are the case study. So, you know, what appeals to, you know, this generation is, is not necessarily uh, historical analysis of things that were done in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, as much as I want to work on stuff that matters today, that's going to matter to me for the next 20 years, while also building the skills I need to function in this new age workforce, which starts to sound a lot like really experienced entrepreneurs. So it, it has been highly attractive to students for that. And then, you know, quite frankly, as, as we started looking for a more diverse set of students and instructors and people. We started in the hacking for defense class, we started getting diplomacy and policy problems. And then somebody came to us and said, hey, will you run you know, a hacking for diplomacy class? Yeah, for Circle now, the state department is funding a hacking for diplomacy course. And actually I think they're funding two next year. But as we found is that the more we have opened up the the window of the types and the agencies supporting the problems, the more attractive the platform has become to more people. Yeah, yeah now I, we haven't got there, but I, I would tell you, we run a platform that connects all the instructors from the hacking for defense, oceans, diplomacy, I-Corps, lean launchpad, internationally. Yeah, and we do something with them every quarter. <laughs> when we do something, the last time we do this, we had 600 instructors from 65 universities all together on the same forum talking about using lean and entrepreneurship as a means of, of going after the problem at the time, but also getting better at teaching it to students to give them the skills that they'll use to actually go out, find, curate, prioritize new problems and actually tackle them and make a difference in the world. The, the students are showing up in droves particularly because that's something they can do while they're in school without completely upending their lives. That does give them a skill set. The folks hiring people afterward will say, that's the type of people we need to hire to work. With the hacking for defense and hacking for everything, I see you guys are talking about H4X. It seems like you guys, as you said, I've got a couple stats here. Roughly 50 universities, more than 2,000 students have gone through the program. 450 national security and intelligence problems have been addressed and 14 startups have been formed. So just to give our listeners a little flavor, do you each have an example of a team that you like to share that's really made an impact on government operations and maybe give us a little indication on how did those students get matched with problems or technologies and, and iterate their way to those, to those solutions? Well, you want to start um, with Capella, Pete? I, I can, or I was going to reverse engineer it from the one we, we learned about last night. I'll give you the bookends. So we'll start with Capella Space, which was a team in the, the first cohort at Stanford. And essentially, it was a group of students who had an idea for using synthetic aperture radar on low Earth orbit satellites to, to actually enhance the gene pool of satellite imagery. And, and, and just a long story short, Several years ago, if you wanted synthetic aperture radar and imagery that could see through the clouds and find things, the only way you were going to get it was off a multi-billion dollar, um, very large platform built by a defense prime run by a defense agency. 
the idea of democratizing the ability to gather more data and increase the re refresh rate with um, CubeSats was huge. The problem that we set them up with, and I, I don't want to boil the ocean here literally, was finding a way to counter the effects of illegal commercial fishing in the South China Sea. And if you want to talk about great power competitions, talk about fishing competitions for food in the South China Sea. And that's what people go to war over. But it turns out, if, if you're looking for a do-use problem, large commercial fishing operations that work illegally do so at night and in crappy weather when you can't see their boats. It just so happens to be the exact same tactics that the North Koreans to use to move their mobile missile launchers. So when you think about the, the problem here, without actually focusing students on finding missile launchers, we're focusing on a problem that is also equally as important. But the side effect of that problem and what they, they came up with is huge. Yeah, and man, I love these students, but they, I, I would say this is the first team to crash the fastest in a course when they suddenly realized that they weren't building a satellite company, but they were really building a data company. Yeah, they came out of that course. I think, Steve, I think it's right. They closed a $200,000 seed round the day after the class ended. Another $1.5 million seed round three months later. Signed a $10 million contract with the NRO three months after that. By the next year, had raised another $45 million. I don't know how many satellites they're flying right now, but they're flying a bunch of satellites. And there are hundreds of millions of dollars into this class. But you think about it, they went from a group of students to a $70 or $80 million funded satellite data company in 15 months, all because they realized what the problems were that they were best suited to solving. And use what they learned to actually build a company. That's on one end. Last night, you know, we had a former student talking to the H4D class about what she had learned and what had gone on. And her team was working on countering deep fake technologies essentially fake videos, fake voices, all those things. And the problem sponsor was InQtel. And, and the sponsor got on and talked about what happened after the class. And he said, it's literally two years later, InQtel Labs was asked to solve a problem. And the solution they delivered was largely built on the model that the students had built two years ago. So part of, part of the answer to the question is the, the impact of the course is, yes, you build companies. and there are great companies out doing that. Yes, we build a, a large cadre of students who spread out across the country and are still working with one another in government specialists, but we're also building a pile of potential solutions that may not be acted on for another year or two years or three years, but all that collateral is out there to be used. Okay, Steve. I covered a lot of territory, Pete, but the, the, the one or two examples, I, just to give your listeners a sense of the class and what the students go through, is... is we had in one of the first classes, students who were working on an underwater navigation problem for Navy SEALs is that their current SEAL delivery vehicle uh, needed to be uh, much closer to the surface to get a GPS lock than they felt comfortable. And, and they were looking for a, a quick fix. These were students who didn't even know whether who the, steel, the SEALs were when they came in. And most of them swam. None of them were Navy divers. In week four of the class, they all qualified as divers. And by week six, they were using CNC machines on campus and 3D printers to mock up floatable buoys that could be deployed with CO2 cartridges for much deeper and were prototyping them in the Stanford swimming pool. 
And literally by the end of the class, they had a minimum viable product that was being tested on a sealed delivery vehicle in 10 weeks. Uh, and these were students, again, who didn't, uh, never understood, you know, what this was on day one. And by week 10, they deeply understood the problem and were prototyping with, with the seals. There was another non-technical problem, which was maybe equally illustrative, was for SEAL training, uh, uh, candidates go through budge training uh, down, in, uh, down near San Diego. A and there was, uh, they were looking to enhance how instructors actually evaluated, instead of just qualitatively, quantitatively, the candidates going through training. And if you read the problem, it sounds, well, let me write some code and I'll sit in my office and, or in my dorm room and, and see if we could solve the problem. Not when you take the class from Pete and I. We made these students actually go through a couple of days of BUDS training uh, with the teams. And we have some great photos of them coming out of the water, <laughs> exhausted. They weren't, we didn't make them, or they, the instructors didn't make them carry the logs. Do you remember those photos, Pete? They were wet and oh. they didn't just show up. This was an agreement with the Navy and the instructors to have the students deeply understand problems. And, and this is the magic combination between Pete's methodology and, and mine. My whole shtick about lean is there are no facts inside the building, so get the hell outside. Pete's part was, and before you jump into a solution, make sure you understand the problem. And that's where the magic happens. And, and the magic happens is when you become the customer or the problem, et cetera. Again, the students working in the Stanford swimming pool, the students in BUDS training. We had another example of working on transferring all the EOD, explosive ordnance knowledge, disposal knowledge that we had learned to our Iraqi and Afghani counterparts as we pulled out. We had a team working on that. And I remember week two, the teams were going blah, 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 EOD team. I said, what the heck do you guys know about an EOD team? How are we supposed to find out? By week three, they were wearing EOD garments, taking the FBI course in Oakland. And there's a video of them trying to walk down. Pete, do you remember the, the, that I team? Do. All fully garbed in trying to manipulate an object. And they certainly had a much better understanding of what EOD, both disposal, and then how do you transmit that knowledge to someone, another practitioner? So if this kind of gives you a sense of how immersive and how, how rapid this process is, it, it, it explains why these teams are continually engaged past the class of, we want to know more, we want to work more, boy, these are important problems, boy, these are smart people and dedicated folks on the other end who are giving us, us these problems. And, and as Pete said, some of them end up to be dual use companies, or some of them just end up as students embedded into the organizations that uh, gave them the, and sponsored the problems. I mean, when I hear you talk, it's, it just sounds so natural, <laughs> like how you guys think about it, the rapid way that they get immersed and then iterate through and find solutions that fit with the missions. And when I just think about how defense acquisition actually works, it sounds a little, quite a bit different. Can you guys just talk a little bit about what lessons are there for defense acquisition professionals and what can they learn from like this H4D process? I'm going to let Pete talk in detail, but I'll give you mine. Number one is if you're writing a requirements and you haven't gotten out and lived the problem, then like you're actually working for our adversaries, not for our country. That's my biggest learning and just watching the requirements or, and the budgeting process, the PBE and joint capabilities process, let alone the acquisition process. The other piece, and we could get in this much some other time, 
all this made sense, our current acquisition and, and planning requirements process, when we could predict the trajectory of technology and we could predict our adversaries and we were planning for 30-year life cycles. The other thing coming from Silicon Valley is no technology lead lasts more than three years now. And yet we're, we have that long tail .mlpf, which is baked into our entire requirements and acquisition system. Some things like still deserve that, but we don't even have this notion of disposable and attributable systems that says, you know, well, screw the theory, let's just get stuff out there and we'll, the concepts will emerge from them. Sometimes you need the doctrine. Sometimes you just need the tech. It's like physics. Sometimes you need the theory first and, and then you build the practice. But sometimes you go, wow, we've developed electric motors and we really don't quite know how they work. The theory will follow. Does that make sense, Eric? Yeah, definitely. One of the things I'd also like you to comment on this, it seems like you said our students, they go out, they're not just writing the requirement, but they live what the mission is. And so that helps them inform the requirement. But then it also seems like there's this dynamic where they're like, they're not only doing that with the requirements and, and experiencing the mission, but then they're also like the acquisition people. And then they're also like the technologists coming up with the solution. They're like an integrated thing rather than one hands off to another in a linear way that hands off to another. And Pete should talk about this. Remember, they, their problems are given to them by sponsors who said, hey, we have this problem we want to work on because I'm absolutely sure this is the problem. And of course, as the students are learning, the sponsors are also getting schooled that maybe the problem is given to them or the problem they thought is a problem is only a symptom of a problem. Pete, I don't know. What's the percentage of, of teams that actually end up working on the same problem at the end as that when they started? I think out of 452, we've seen two. And, and Eric, I think that's one of the, the biggest problems. Okay, any organization, and BM&T spends an inordinate amount of time inside large agencies working this issue, is that we waste an incredible amount of our precious assets in terms of time and money perfectly solving the wrong problems. And, and that's impossible to recover from. In an era of great power competition, a thousand X that pain point. Because if you waste any time working on the wrong thing, you are falling further and further behind. There is no catch up. You just don't recover from that. You know, that's been the rule in the business world forever. And I think we're now starting to face that in the defense world. I, I would extend what Steve would say, particularly to the acquisition professionals. Because I, I think the, you started to touch on it, Eric, in terms of the students become really good generalists. And I'll tell you, the, and one of the things I've learned in Silicon Valley is that most founders, the people who know the tech that have the idea, are horrible business builders. They're not entrepreneurs. Most entrepreneurs aren't, while they have deep technical understanding, they understand the technology, how to make a business model, finance, IP, go-to-market strategies, feedback strategies. They become practitioners of so many things that they're able to build a team to actually deliver something. And I, and I think so many times in the military, we slap somebody with an MOS or a skill code and say, you can't do this unless you've been certified to do X, Y, and Z. And incredibly, this is bullshit. I can't say it any other way. Is nobody in the entrepreneurial world would ever say you can't do it because you're not qualified. Everybody they say is go ahead and try it. We'll see how you do. And, and over time, you're going to learn something. The thing that the students also deliver to the sponsor, I tell you, is pushback. 
And to use the example of the EOD thing, the when the students finished running the obstacle course in the bomb suits, they started really digging into how that organization actually delivered solutions to partners and other things. And I remember, Steve, remember this, the students came in with this organizational map that wasn't the org diagram. It was the influence diagram of how the organization actually functioned. And, and you could hear the gaps in the back of the room because people were convinced it was a classified document. And the students had simply put this together in open source from what they've learned. And essentially they went back to the, the problem owner and says, listen, it doesn't matter what technological solution we give you, you can't deploy it. And here's why your system's breaking down and why you can't function. That organization spent the next year rebuilding its processes to fix that problem. The, the challenge I think for acquisition people is, is they get caught up in, in tolerating what I would call the misinterpretation of policy that's been handed down to them over and over again and not pushing back on it saying, that's not right. I realize that's a lawyer's interpretation of a policy, but that's not right. That's not what the law says. It could be interpreted differently. I have a great example of, or they don't spend the money to actually just fix the problem. For my time at REF, I, I actually had deployed, we took the Crow systems off of Humvees, the, that automatic 50 caliber system, and we put them in guard towers. And then somebody said, hey, we want to extend the control system from the guard tower to the base defense operations tower. Now the power cable not long enough. So we were going to use fiber optic cable to do that. And we took it to a test range where we we're going to do the final evaluation of, does this work right? An engineer looked at it and said, yeah, it'll work, but you're not allowed to do it. And he proceeded to pull out a 1965 Air Force regulation that required a copper wire connection between a trigger and a weapon system. And most people would have quit at that point because you can't pass enough power across the cable to whatever to do that. I spent $1.8 million and spent six months proving that it was safe to use fiber optic wire to do it, to get an exception to that rule. So the, the very idea of what I did is the mantra we give these students is don't let the bureaucracy get in the way. Right is right. Raise the problems, find the people you need to actually solve the problem, get their attention, do whatever you have to do to get the exception to policy to keep moving at the pace you need to move. We'll clean up the damage and everything else behind you. If the acquisition community needs something, it's a little more of that and, and a less of here are the litany of regulations and other things you got to follow in order not to have a contract violated and not to, to violate some rule. I'm off my soapbox now. Yeah, that reminds me of uh, Vandergriff's phraseology that is taking joy in responsibility. And it, it seems that just that can be really hard for people to do, but that's just a pretty amazing story of breaking down barriers. I want to kind of move on to a couple of actually related efforts that I think sprang off or, or similar to the Hacking for Defense effort. Steve, I want to start with you. You just launched a great modern war class at Stanford last year in 2020. Can you just talk about that experience and what's your plan for it going forward? Sure. With uh, Joe Felter, who was uh, one of Pete's co-founders of BMMT, and Ra Shah, who was the first head of DIU, we put together a class to kind of answer some questions that were bothering me, which is there's a whole set of new technologies. The name of the class is Technology, Innovation, and Modern War. And if you want to see the class, I actually blogged every week of the class on steveblank.com. So you could, there's a category on the left called Technology, Innovation, Modern War. Just click on it and you'll get all those blog posts. But basically it, it was the observation is, look, for the last 75 years, the DOD owned all the core technologies it needed to 
to prosecute a war and in fact win because we had the most advanced tech, whether it was drones or cyber or et cetera. And we just woke up to discover that most of that stuff now is being driven outside of our research FFRDCs and military labs, et cetera. It's not that we're not doing that stuff, but commerce is pushing, pushing them much faster, whether it's 5G or AI or autonomy or drones or robotics or even commercial access to space has passed our ability to kind of SpaceX now has 1400 satellites of their own up there. It's the biggest constellation in space. The point was, is that all this has just changed the calculus because half of those things are now being driven by China and then China commercial interests. So now our adversaries have access to the same technology. Maybe hypersonics is the only thing that's yet to be commercialized at scale. But the DOD is like still focused on requirements and acquisition and a whole planning process that says, well, you got two or three years to plan and budget and require before we even get to, before we even write an acquisition contract. Startups are born, ship a hundred million things and then die in that amount of time. The technology cycle has kind of way exceeded our current DOD structures. So the purpose of the class, that was the long soliloquy, was to get a handle from both the technology side and the people inside the DOD who are trying to manage that stuff. So for space, we actually had General Raymond come in and and talk to us about where the Space Force was going. For the Navy, we had uh, Admiral Selby come in and and give us his view of, are we still building more physical stuff or are we going to be building attributable things with different life cycles that are distributed and much harder to find and hit, et cetera, with the same throw weight or whatever. And so what were the views of DOD and other place leadership on how this technology is affecting the DOD? And we even had Ellen Nord come in and and give us a talk about the new adaptive acquisition framework, which I I think is a, is a great start, but, but still doesn't address the speed issue that that are, we're still in the McNamara era of, of where he was trying to recover from the 50s, where we were building how many bombers? We did B-36s and 47s and 52s and in 10 years and a couple of generations of carriers and a century series of fighters. And, and so the whole system we built was to cost control and life cycle control that. But it was pretty obvious from this class that at least for acquisition folks, it's now out of your control the world is being driven by technology outside your purview and you don't have a system yet designed to capture and adapt as fast as it's moving and that was at least the conclusion i came from the class is not that anybody's doing anything stupid and it's not that we need to tear up the whole system but the first thing we all need to do is acknowledge what's happened outside of the dod control and how do we get it back that was the purpose of the class there it was a great class and you, you all you had a lot of heavy hitters that came and spoke to the class and actually those videos are up on your blog as well as excellent write-ups that you've done for each class and they're also on your podcast so i would definitely recommend our listeners go over to steve blank's uh, website and blog and and check those out pete you launched h4x labs over at bmnt an early stage accelerator can you talk a little bit about your vision for that? And what's the potential for dual-use companies here going forward? Yeah, I think the reason we launched it is because we failed at something. So remember Capella Space and the story about how much money they raised and what they did. It, about four months after the chaos, the, the founder sat down in my office and they were doing a, a post-mortem on 
what had happened after the class and where he was going, a lot of trajectory. He asked a lot of questions and he said, he goes, one of my frustrations is that I came through this class that had all this structure and, and it brutally honest feedback from really gifted people who were connected to the networks of people that were focused on helping things. And at the end of the class, the class was over and I had nothing. And I had to go now take everything I learned about the business application. I had to go repeat it for the commercial application. And he said, you guys suck. You left me hanging on the edge of a cliff. You guys, and this is him to us, is there is nobody better in the world suited for helping a company through that transition period. And, and I've come to learn since is that what early stage teams, even before the companies need most, is access to unfettered, direct, qualified feedback. The hardest thing for a founder to get is honest feedback to people. We have amassed a network of people who speak a common language, who understand the impact of that type of feedback and the impetus to provide help to solve issues that extends to hundreds, if not thousands, entrepreneurship educators around the country, thousands of problem owners in the defense industry, and I don't want to say not just in the DOD, but within the entire industry, not to mention the venture capital community and other folks. We have this really cool stable of mentors and advisors that are available who have been part of the courses uh, or have been part of the other work that BMT has done, who are like Steve Blank, who just want to keep giving and do things that are impactful. H4X Labs, let's say the personification of H4X Labs, was to harness all that goodwill and all that movement and focus it on helping the, what I would say is nascent teams that are coming out of a program that aren't quite a company yet, turn into an investable entity that is worthwhile of somebody's time and energy. Yeah, and the more we did it, the more we found that there were lots of people building accelerators, Y Combinator or Techstars or whatever else that are focused on, you got a company in the Southland and there's money and you got to go someplace, you're great. But there wasn't anybody really sitting in that space that said, I'm interested in the technology readiness level. I'm interested in the capability of the team that it's going to take to deliver and scale that technology. And I'm interested in the adoption pathway you're going to use to actually get from your idea or prototype all the way to deployment. And I'm going to grade you on those three things, but I'm actually going to bring the people to help you advance all three of those things to the point where somebody's going to look at you say, you're worth writing a check to from the government standpoint or from the commercial standpoint. Under the leadership of Steve Weinstein and now Ellen Chang, we looked at, and Mark Peterson, I don't know how many thousand companies we looked at this year, but we actually brought 50 through HWorks Labs. Those 50 companies earned about 50 million in government contracts. And I'm not just seeing a contract that's worth something. I'm talking, they got contract dollars through the company and another hundred million in private capital. And that was just this year. The division right now, we're going to double it this year. And there's already that much demand on it. We're also finding that outside DOD, for instance, we're talking to a large mining company that's worried about rare earth metals and, and the mining industry and other issues that they have. We're seeing more and more interest from the medical community of, of how to get advanced ideas to move faster. So I think you'll see, actually, I know you'll see HWorks Labs will vastly expand the work it does for the government, but also start looking beyond the government, defense primes or other large corporations that they have the internal teams that are trying to do this, but just can't seem to get across the goal line. And we'll find them a better, more disciplined pathway to do that. Great. Excited to see the companies and efforts coming out of that. 
So as we wrap up here, if you guys were creating an acquisition professionals reading list, what book or article would be at the top of that list for you? Steve Blank's blog, start to finish, (laughs) the whole flipping thing. I'm done. And Steve, how about you? Besides, of course, also our readers should always take a look through A Secret History of Silicon Valley. Tons of amazing stuff there. And Steve has several books out as well. But any recommendations from you, Steve? If your listeners haven't found your reading list page, Eric, that's the place I started. And also you have a link to the things that I thought were incredibly interesting, which were the defense acquisition histories. At least the cliff notes of, of, of those should be required reading. The other thing that it's not directly related to, to acquisition, but it's how major change got, got made. And that was the book called The Battle on the Potomac, which was basically how we got the Goldwater Nichols Act. Victory um, on the Potomac. Sorry, Victory on the Potomac. Right. It's, and, and I was just surprised because it didn't start fully formed. It started with maybe we should just reform the Joint Chiefs and then ended up coming up with some, something much bigger and certainly different. I, I, I still think better than what we had. And that kind of you know gets to the question that you've, you and this whole podcast series have been doing is what do we need to do to adapt and adopt the new technologies and deal with the changing face of, of, of the world with our current systems? So I, yeah, I, 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 would, I would start with your reading list and then victory on the Potomac. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Pete Newell, Steve Blank. Thanks for joining me on the Acquisition Talk podcast. Thanks for having us. We'll see you. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.